Welcome to the third season of The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbinder, and together with my co-producer, Angela Washington, we bring you really amazing stories of amazing people. I'm so lucky that I get to have these conversations and to share them with you. These are conversations with people who have overcome, people who have endured, people who have gone on when others might not have. They've overcome losses or tragedies, disappointments and heartbreaks, or they've seen a goal and pursued it to its end. And what I'm really fascinated by is they don't just share that they had these stories or that they lived them, but how, what were their inspirations? What were the resources they used? What ideas kept them going? How did they dig deep and find what they needed to find to go on? Because it's my belief that when we learn how someone else got through hard times or found their goals, that we learn how we might be able to do the same. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And if you like what you hear, give us a like or a share on your social media site or golly, use the good old-fashioned word of mouth and tell a friend about us. We love sharing these stories with other people. Thanks for listening. It is my pleasure to bring to the Morning Glory Project Willa Goodfellow. Willa is an Episcopal priest, and her ministry has included work with troubled teens, college students, congregations in transition, diocesan structures, to develop spiritual leadership within local communities and advocacy for the full inclusion of LGBTQ people. She was a professional troublemaker. Well, I'm going to ask about that. <laughs> Lifelong depression caught up with Willa in her 50s. Her poor, pitiful brain nearly threw itself over the edge as a consequence of a major depression misdiagnosis and treatment with way too many antidepressants until she was finally re-diagnosed with bipolar disorder and began her road to recovery. But hey, she got some great rants out of the experience and went freelance as a troublemaker. She's now a mental health journalist, speaker, blogger, and the author of Prozac Monologues, A Voice from the Edge. Willa, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Betsy. You are doing such great work on this podcast, and I'm honored to be one of your guests. Ah, well, thank you. I'm honored to have you. So this book, I have to tell you, I read it really quickly because it's that kind of a book, and it stuck with me. I want to kind of start with, tell me the story of what prompted you to write this or how, how did this story come to be? Well, I'm not surprised you read it quickly because I wrote it quickly. Uh, okay. But the story, <laughs> the story goes back, uh, you know, my depression began in early childhood and through school years and most of my working years, I got by with a little bit of therapy, a lot of sucking it up because in my family, we didn't do illness or weakness of any sort. Wait, wait, wait. Just I want to linger there for a second. We didn't do illness. What do you mean by that? Oh, I mean, if I said I felt sick and wanted to stay home from school, my mother would put her hand on her forehead, put her hand on my forehead and say, my temperature is higher than yours and I'm going to work. So you're going to school. Okay, that sounds not unlike lots of households, right? Certainly of that era, but also it's a 
it's a brand of negation, isn't it? It's, it's, you're not really, whatever you're feeling, you're not really. It is. And, and three of the six of her offspring ended up in the hospital with serious health complications because we had learned how to ignore our pain. I had a ruptured appendix in my case. Anyway, so sucking it up was uh, the preferred method of dealing with things. But in November 2004, that wasn't working anymore. And I went on an antidepressant. Hmm. In, In very short order, I was agitated, irritated, intractable insomnia, and I was thinking about suicide, which presumably an antidepressant is supposed to prevent. Then one day, I'm walking into my doctor's office, and I had an image of myself grabbing my doctor from behind and pressing the point of my nail file to her neck. And it seemed that I was outside my body and watching myself do it. Well, that was disturbing. Well, wait, that's way more than disturbing. That, that, and that, was, that was an anomaly, right? You wasn't like, it wasn't as though you had homicidal thoughts your whole life, right? This was a new phenomenon. Correct. And it took me, um, it took me a long time to learn how to talk about it without people thinking that was a random thought because that's the way I treated it. But while it was happening, I was... I felt paranoid. I felt disconnected from my surroundings. I couldn't tell what was real, and I was scared. In fact, I wondered if other people saw me do it. Mm. Now, I'm in the receptionist's office. I'm not in my doctor's office at that point. But I didn't tell my doctor about it because I was, you know, also embarrassed. Well, and probably cognizant enough that if you mentioned this to a doctor that you might end up getting put in jail or hospitalized against your will or whatever. Well, exactly, exactly. And um, in in fact, the psych ward was just one floor up. I really thought that the receptionist was typing a message to the psych ward and that when they called my name to go in to see the doctor, that I was just simply going to be taken straight upstairs. So, Will, let me linger here just for a minute because... You, you to this point have battled depression, but you weren't schizophrenic. You weren't somebody who, halluc- who hallucinated. You didn't have paranoid ideation. You didn't have homicidal tendencies. These were new symptoms, though you'd struggled with mental health issues in terms of depression. Right. This was a new, a whole new branch on the tree, right? Exactly. Exactly. And this was more than just oh, I can't stand this woman, how I wish I could just put a nail file to her throat. This was like a vision of you doing, this was a, I want to amplify what this was so people aren't afraid that every time they have a thought of, man, I could run that guy down with a car. You know, I mean, everybody's had the random. Exactly, exactly. That's not what this was. No, it wasn't at all. This was, this was way out of the ordinary. Yeah, everybody has a, a random um, hostile thought, right, um, or self-destructive thought. This this was a whole different kind of experience. It had to be terrifying. It, I was terrified, and I wish. Well, you know, 
what if, what if, whatever. Um, I'd never heard of anything like this, or I assumed that it meant that I was on my way to the psych ward. So I didn't tell my doctor. And instead, we talked about insomnia, irritability, um, couldn't concentrate. So you nibbled on the edges of the symptoms, right? Right. Well, those were symptoms I had had. It's interesting. Those are things that are symptoms of depression. They're also side effects of antidepressants. And they are symptoms of a mixed episode of bipolar. All of that. But we were just working with depression. And so what happened was um, we increased my dose. Well, so, and I want to clarify here too, I'm a licensed therapist, but I am not a psychiatrist. So I don't want to speak with any expertise about the medication specifically, other than your experience of it. Right. I want to let folks know that even in a clinical practice like mine, I'm, I'm a, a marriage family therapist. So I get lots of different kinds of folks. I don't treat bipolar disorder, but certainly folks with bipolar disorder have come through my office. Right. And I have to say from a professional standpoint, it's one of the most baffling of disorders to, to correctly diagnose because it manifests in different ways on different days in different setting at different points in one's life. And it mimics a lot of other different kinds of problems. Like it, it can look like a major depression or it can look like anxiety or it can right. look like different things. It's like that old story of the the five blind men and the elephant, each one of them touching a different part of the elephant, thinking it's a tree or a wall or a rope. And it depends which part of the elephant comes in the office, what you diagnose. So it's, it's trickier on the part of professionals. And also this was how many years ago now? This was 2004. But you know what, Betsy? Um... And this is like, this is getting into later parts of the story, but things are not getting better. No. Even psychiatrists are not getting better at diagnosing and treating bipolar. And what is really frustrating to me about that is that there's been lots of research and it's not filtering down even to new psychiatrists office. Hmm. Uh, the DSM, the latest edition of the Diagnostic Manual, uh, was published in 2013, and it failed to incorporate things that people have known about bipolar, that the experts have known about polar, bipolar for the last 20 years. So even though there have been some advancements, they're not really dribbling down to the, to the point of service, is what you're saying. Right. So there is still that elephant in the room problem. <laughs> and people are still trying to diagnose it with blindfolds when there are ways of taking the blindfolds off. Fair enough. That is my continued frustration. So you wrote Prozac monologues because indeed Prozac was one of the, the antidepressant medications you were given on which you had this episode where you started to have these more severe symptoms. Right. Well, what happened shortly after that episode in the doctor's office, and then after my increased dose, another similar kind of thing happened. I went off Prozac 
I went on vacation to Costa Rica and I was in, well, they call it flipping. I was in a hypomanic episode. First of all, I was so freaked out about this nail file in the neck thing. I called it for years. And I erased all of the experiential parts of that, mm-hmm. the paranoia, the depersonalization, the derealization. I just kind of put that on a shelf that didn't come out again for a decade and focused on the nail file in the neck thing. And I called it a bizarre thought because one of the side effects of Prozac is a bizarre thought. And I started asking myself the question, well, what is bizarre? And I turned it into a comedy routine, Mm -hmm. uh, reflecting on the bizarre nature of the world today. And how can you tell if something is bizarre? So that was a thought that was in my head. I get on a plane to Costa Rica for a week with a yellow notepad And I started writing that monologue and then I could not stop. I spent my entire vacation writing monologues. Eventually there were nine of them, I guess nine or 10 of them, seven of them were written on that week in Costa Rica. So let me pull this apart for a second, because one of the symptoms, one of the ways you can decide that it's an elephant and not a wall or a tree is to step back and get a bigger look at things, which is hard to do for a clinician who isn't walking around in your life. So I want to give a certain amount of, what's the word? Some, not excuse, but some understanding to clinicians who are not following you around every day and they can't see the whole elephant. Oh, sure. But but at the same time, taking a wider history, really trying to understand, asking permission to talk to loved ones so that you get a fuller picture. Those, Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that can happen. But for you, what happened is you just channel, one of the symptoms is this florid, obsessive, thing that you did. And a lot of bipolar folks can be highly productive when they're in a manic phase. They can mm-hmm. write a whole book as you did, or yes. they can, they could be wildly creative, inventive, whatever. And so that's something, and they get lots of rewards and applause, but oh my gosh, you wrote, you wrote a whole book in how long was it? It, most of it was one week uh, and it took another two weeks to finish it. So for people who take years to write, right. monologue, you, you know, they might feel themselves jealous, but let me tell you, it's not, it, that doesn't sound like something that's a fun thing to, to experience. It's, it, it's, it may have a product, but it's not something you want to endure. No, you don't want to. Now at the time I thought it was amazing. My wife was scared but she wasn't in the doctor's office. And I did tell my doctor about it. Uh, And I I talked about maniacally writing all of my vacation. Hmm. She heard the word maniacally and she said, are you manic? And I said, I'm not manic, I'm excited. So we went on to the next antidepressant. 
Well, so in lit- in literature, what we would call you in that moment is an unreliable reporter. Yes. Right? <laughs> an unreliable narrator so that you can't really trust the perspective of, yeah. and isn't it bizarre that in, in psychology, we still count on the person who may be suffering the mental illness to give us the, an accurate diagnosis of that mental illness. It's, it's kind of a freaky thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, again, what if, what if, whatever life went on from there. Uh, so I had this book, I was, I tried to get it published. Uh, it was not a good time to try to publish a book, but in the meantime, I was starting on this downward spiral of one antidepressant after another and getting sicker and sicker each time until eventually I was on disability. Because you couldn't function, you couldn't get yourself out of bed, couldn't function, couldn't, was, was there a lot more of this sort of paranoid, crazy thinking? Was there? Not, no, not, not, not the kind of thing that happened when I was in that doctor's office, but not being able to, yeah, get started, having trouble dealing with people, and just one severe depressive episode after another, really quite suicidal Mm -hmm. twice during that period of time. Well, first of all, let me say I'm so sorry for the suffering that took place during that. I know that that, I know you're in large degree past much of this, but I have to say that it's something that, you know, we toss off like I was suicidal, but, but if we go back and live that moment, (laughs) I'm, I know there had to be a lot of agony in that. And I'm sorry for that suffering. You know, there's been a lot going on in the world in the last five years and, and more and just the normal suffering of life, right? And yes. so sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between I'm sad about things and I'm depressed. It's a, And you write a line in your book that I have read over and over again since I, hmm. since I read your book. Because folks that have some underlying sadness, depression, might be feeling things even more extremely these days. But it's hard to distinguish what's the normal response to what's going on in the world around us. And you say, you give a list of all of the ridiculous and horrible things that have gone on in the world, politically, socially, environmentally, all of that. And you say, in short, it's hard to know whether depression is a problem of distorted thinking or a consequence of clarity. Yeah. And I would alter that sentence for myself because I tilt, I, I don't tilt toward depression. I tilt toward anxiety. And I would say, in short, it's hard to know whether depression or anxiety are a problem of distorted thinking or a consequence of clarity. Can you tell me a little bit about how you read that line now, today, after all of this time? Right. Well, I have a greater appreciation for the physicality of the mental illness of depression or the mental illness of bipolar disorder. It's not the same as sad. It's not the same as worried. Mm. There are many other pieces to it about how the brain just isn't functioning right. 
So, for example, um, well, distorted thinking in depression, it makes a whole lot of sense to grieve the dying planet. Mm. It is a distortion to think it's my fault because I forgot to bring my carry bags to the grocery store and now I'm putting my vegetables in a plastic bag. So it's, that's what that, I think that's why this sentence keeps lingering for me because sad and worried are, dare I say this is a terrible word, but normal. Yes, they are. Sad and worried are the, are the reasonable responses to what goes on. But you're talking about a measurable and vast difference between I'm sad and I'm worried versus I have distorted thinking or I'm paralyzed by depression. Right. If I can't get out of bed in the morning because I'm so sad or worried, then something else is going on. If it's impairing your function. Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, we live in a sad and troublesome world, but we still live. Yeah. So, Willa, you you wrote these monologues, if you will, and then you wrote some other things around them, I'm gathering. I I don't think they're exactly as they were written. My guess is that you polished them and and added some words around them. And I want to ask you to read just a short part of the the story. It's in the, uh, when you say metaphor, my search for meaning and how a pharmaceutical company, the pharmaceutical companies try to help. If you read just a page there for us. Sure. Now, this is the one monologue that was written a couple of years later. So this is what I'd call the perspective monologue? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Eventually, this frame that I wrote about it, I wrote after I realized my diagnosis was wrong. I had bipolar and I had to reframe the story. But this monologue, I still... I had tried six different antidepressants and was unwilling to take that risk any, any longer. So metaphor, the DSM has its checklists. People with depression have poetry. People with diabetes discuss their diet, their feet, their retinas. They check glucose levels. Put two diabetics at a table. They compare numbers. People with depression talk in metaphor. We talk about the cloud, the curtain, the weight, the darkness. When it goes away, we say it lifted. That lift is a physical sensation, actually, of lightness or elevation. We are drawn to writing, us depressives. Edgar Allan Poe, Virginia Woolf, Sylvia Plath, Ernest Hemingway, Anne Rice. These are writers off the top of my head who had depression or bipolar. People who are depressed want words. If I could just find the right words, maybe I could break the spell. The pharmaceutical companies want to help. Truly, they do. In addition to the pharmacological options they have for sale, they offer up words to those who are searching for somebody, anybody, who understands our experience. Do you remember the Depression Hurts commercials? 
the emotional and painful physical symptoms of depression, they said. Not one mental health care professional has ever asked me about pain. It's not one of the diagnostic criteria because the information doesn't help the doctor make the diagnosis. There are so many other things that can cause pain. It would, however, tell the patient that the doctor knows what depression feels like, which would help, actually. Part of the spell is the isolation, the sense that nobody knows, not really. I can't show you an x-ray or a blood test. All I have is words. Do you really believe my words? That passage lingers with me so because both as a mental health professional and as a client of mental health professionals, I think that what people want to be is to be seen and to be understood. Yes. It seems like that's the craving most as opposed to being guessed at or dismissed or misdiagnosed, certainly. What do you think has gotten you through to the other side of this, where you are indeed a functioning person mm-hmm. with a marriage that has remained with a life that's gone on. What do you think has gotten you through? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? And as I've listened to your podcast, I've thought about that a lot. Um, and when I came up with my own answer, I was surprised because I got through it first by getting angry. Mm-hmm. I was angry at one of my psychiatrists whose treatment, well, let's call it careless. But I was especially angry at my condition. I've always been a person who accomplished things, who was smart, capable, responsible, could think through my way through any problem. Reed College, Yale. Uh, But as I got sicker, all that was falling apart. I was working on my doctorate, had done the research, the outline, knew exactly what I wanted to say, but I couldn't write it. Because Because your brain just was not functioning. My brain was not functioning, and I didn't recognize myself. There was a while... Um... Well, I was I was on a, another medication at that point when I couldn't finish a sentence for about nine months. I'd mm-hmm. lost my words. But my anger morphed into determination. I wanted to know what the hell had happened to my brain. So I started reading. And where I went to school, we didn't read textbooks. We read original sources. So one research study at a time, I started to learn about how the brain and how my brain worked. And sometimes that made me more angry. Um, As you said, bipolar is hard to diagnose. No, the things that I was reading were written in 2001, 2003. There are screens that... um, You know, every time I go to the doctor nowadays, they hand me a depression screen or an anxiety screen. Well, there are bipolar screens, too. Half the people who are diagnosed with depression eventually 
are re-diagnosed with bipolar, half of us. And it takes years for us to get to that. And in the meantime, we're taking medications that put our lives at risk. And certainly misdiagnosing and prescribing antidepressants to somebody. And, you know, it's always a freaky thing when we hear those disclaimers at the end of mental health medications commercials, you know, may cause suicidal thoughts. And I'm thinking every time I hear that, I think, well, hell, why would anybody want to take that? But you're so desperate to not feel the symptoms that you're feeling that you'll take damn near anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then if it's misdiagnosed, and we also have to remember that while I'm I'm forgiving of some mental health professionals for because it's hard to diagnose, we also have to remember that just like every other profession, there are skilled and competent and genius mental health practitioners, and there are cruddy ones, and there are mediocre ones in between. Yeah, and yeah. and so that's also true. Somebody graduated bottom of the class, you know. <laughs> somebody somebody is less skilled or a little lazy or um or not so competent or, or distracted or in denial or whatever, or they have their own mental health issues. So we have yeah. to be judicious about the folks that we're seeing too. And that they're up on, if, if somebody listening here struggles with bipolar disorder or struggles with depression, that may be being misdiagnosed and it really is something else. It's kind of Cinderella and the slipper, you know, you have to kind of find the therapist that really gets you. And sometimes that takes a little shopping and that's hard if you're, if right. benefits don't cover certain people or whatever, it's it's not an easy thing. Right. The only psychiatrist I can find here, I won't go to because when she did a med review, she she made suggestions that told me that I'd read more about bipolar than she had. Well, so I want I want to go back. I took your trail of thought for a second. You said I asked how you got through, and you said your anger got you searching. Yeah, your anger fueled this search, and you you made discoveries along the way. Where are you now? Where Where are you with this? And what 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 is the? Uh, I don't want to imply that it's all over and you're all better. I'm, that's not how this disorder works. But you mm-hmm. seem to be on the functional side of this today, where there was a time when that wasn't true. What got you here and where are you now? Right. Well, they uh, they talk about depressive episodes and manic episodes or hypomanic in my case. I have bipolar 2 and euthemia, which is the so-called normal. It's not really normal. The brain still has many dysfunctions, but they're not on any, the the dysfunctions are not on any of the diagnostic lists. So I still have to make accommodations for the glitches inside the wiring of my brain. But what happened? Eventually, a friend who is a psychiatrist handed me a book by Ellen Frank, Treating Bipolar Disorder, It's about interpersonal social rhythms therapy. And it's written for clinicians. It's not an easy read, but I can do things that are not an easy read. I turned it into a four-part blog post and sent it off to Ellen Frank. And yeah, she's, she thought I had nailed it. Um, And in fact, she did endorse my book once that was published. But one lifestyle change at a time. And 
I have, I, I have trouble with medications and can't find the sweet spot where it's helping, but it's not harming or it's not helping enough, but not hurting too much. Right. And so I have to do everything else right. Mm -hmm. Sleep is the most important routine. Um, I have breakfast at 730, no matter what. Learning to say no to things when I'm getting overstimulated because I still can rise to the occasion. I get into a social situation that's stimulating and I can still be the life of the party. And then I come home and I collapse and I'm no good for however long it takes to recover, to recover. And if I don't manage, you know, that, that I can decide that party is going to be worth it a couple of days recovery. But if I get into, if I overload the amount of work I try to do in promoting the book, for example, I can just wear myself into a dark spot. So well, it's sort of it. So it's a decision about choosing to miss out on certain things that might sound like fun or be satisfying or professionally positive and saying that's, that's too going to be too many things in a row, or that's going to be too long or too late in the evening or right. whatever it might be kind of being judicious about what's worth the impact for you. Right. So exercise and diet, I understand from the book, yeah. is a big yeah. part of that for you. Yeah. A lot of people try to make their think that their meds will do all the work because actually they get told that. When I was searching for a therapist uh, who could help me with social rhythms therapy, which I never did find, but I, I talked with a therapist and she said, no, the only thing that helps with bipolar is meds. And so a whole lot of people try to, they get that message. Their psychiatrists don't talk about other things. It's all about adjusting medication. And that's like, it's like giving antibiotics to somebody who's malnourished. If you don't have the body that is in, that is conditioned to be able to make use of the medication, then the medication is just going to cause you side effects. Right. Well, and, and I do want to be cautious here. There are folks that I know in my personal life, as well as my professional life, that medications are vital for them to oh, stay absolutely. stable. So absolutely. We're not at all dismissing that because it's important. But what you're saying is it's not the coup de grace. It's not, it's not the right. only thing that fixes. And, and even if you find medications that are well-balanced for you and that work and are effective, you could still do some other things that assist those medications, help the boat to rise, or can sink it with inappropriate health practices, social rhythm exercises, as you, practices, as you call them, bad sleep patterns, all of those kinds of things. So it's a more holistic look at things. So your anger propelled you into research, into learning, and into yes. taking sovereignty back over your own condition, it sounds like to me. That's a really good word, sovereignty. What do you hope folks will take away from this book, Willa? Oh. And from your story? Different things for different audiences. For... Uh, for, but for everybody, hope. Hmm. Bipolar is imminently treatable. 
And however one is functioning, one can improve that functioning. Um, I want family members to know that it's not a hopeless case. I, I hope clinicians take from it mm, some more information maybe that they didn't get in school. Um, things that people like Nasir Gami and Hagapa Kiskel, Goodwin and Jameson, that there's a lot out there that could help clinicians function better. And for people who are suffering, I've had a few incidents like this. I'm, I'm recording the audiobook right now, and one of the people at the recording studio was listening in. He was the he's the partner of the of the sound engineer. And when I came upstairs from finishing my session, he said, "Oh my gosh, I, that was my story when I was in high school, and I was taking medication after medication, and each one just made me worse." And people need. And when, when people are going through that, they think they're the only one and they think they're alone. So I want people to know they're not alone. Hmm. Well, if readers take from this that they are not alone, they're not isolated, that there is hope. If clinicians take from this, gee, maybe I need to look a little more broadly. While I'm so, so sorry for what you've endured to get there, I'm so grateful that it brought you to this result. The Prozac Monologues, A Voice from the Edge by Willa Goodfellow, definitely something I uh, advise reading if you or someone you care about has struggled with bipolar disorder or really any mental health matter for that matter. Thank you, Willa, so much for your time, for your generosity, and for your brilliant mind in bringing this story to us. Thank you, Betsy. I have a number of extra blooms from my conversation with Willa Goodfellow today. One is just a cautionary tale. I just want to really reiterate that Willa's experience is not an endorsement for folks just suddenly going off of their medications because they don't quite fit. It's a prompt for us all to be more assertive, more communicative, more selective about our medical care, including our mental health medical care. And so if you struggle with bipolar disorder, with severe depression, with anxiety, with any of those things, and you're still struggling with medications, of course, finding the care that you need, finding just the right medications or the right practices and holistic health practices that work for you is something you deserve. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But the other thing that really pops out in my conversation with Willa is that when I asked her how she got through the difficult part, she said something that I've not heard said exactly the same way from any of my other guests, I don't think. And that is that she said she got angry. You know, anger takes a bad rap. <laughs> anger gets scolded out of us. We're told to count to 10. Anger is unpleasant to experience and to be around. Anger, in, particularly in women is often not tolerated. Men get to be angry and women get to be sad in the gross gender assignments of mood in our culture. But I want to 
focus on the anger was not only justifiable and understandable for what she was going through, but it was useful. That sometimes anger is not only the right response, it's the fuel for proper change. And it can catapult us out of lethargy or inertia and into activity that's useful and helpful. I'm reminded of Rebecca Traster's book, Good and Mad. You know, even just the title, (laughs) she's talking about good and mad for social justice for women and a number of things like that. But I think even just the title of that book, Good and Mad, notice it's not good or mad, not one or the other. They can coexist. Sometimes, whether it's because of what's going on in society, what's going on in our environment, what's going on in our political world, what's going on in our family or personal life, sometimes anger is exactly what is needed. And it certainly was for Willa. And she tells that in her book, The Prozac Monologues, A Voice from the Edge. Thanks for listening to The Morning Glory Project and wherever you are, whether you are struggling with mental health concerns or someone you love is struggling. I hope that you are finding the care that you need, finding the care that they need, finding the comfort of that care. And I hope that you and yours are all finding a way to bloom.